Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 30th, 2021. It's uh, a Monday, late morning on the West Coast, early afternoon on the East Coast, evening in Europe. I hope you're all well. Um, got a really good show today, or a very promising, uh, curious show. Uh, when you look at the headlines today, I'm never quite sure whether they suggest that everything's changing or nothing is changing, uh, particularly when it comes to the the P word, power, power, uh, a word that we've dealt with many times uh, on our show, particularly since COVID. Uh, when you look at the headlines about Afghanistan, one headline in the in the journal, Afghan militants fire rockets at Kabul airport as the US withdrawal nears end. Power seemingly is shifting from the US to what the journal calls Afghan militants, which may indeed just simply be Afghanis uh, or, or, or the Taliban. That's still very controversial. Uh, another headline in the journal suggests new Afghanistan worry, same as old Afghanistan worry. Uh, the Taliban are back. They hold a new kind of power or maybe an old kind of power. Um, one of the parables or warnings clearly of this latest chapter in the Afghan tragedy is the new reality of international politics, a shift in power. Uh, the Washington Post suggests that it reflects the limits of the U.S. response. Uh, as always, there's a call for America to reduce its military uh, by critics of American quote-unquote militarism. And of course, in political terms, this has been a terrible week for Joe Biden in the New York Times. They describe uh, this Afghan week as his week from hell. So I wonder what lessons about power uh, this latest chapter um, in the Afghan tragedy uh, offers us. Uh, we're very fortunate to have the author of a really interesting new book, Power for All, How It Really Works and Why It's Everyone's Business. It's by two authors, Julie Batilana and Tiz, uh, Tiziana Cascaro. Uh, we have Julie on the show. Um, and I'm, I'm curious as to, uh, I mean, she doesn't talk much about Afghanistan, of course, in the book. But uh, I, I'm curious, Julie, what do these events in Afghanistan tell us about how power really works. Andrew, thank you. And thank you for having me on this show. Like you're, you're right to start with the, the events in Afghanistan and, and the, you know, the tragedies of the, of, of the past few, few days. Uh, indeed, if we want to understand what's happening there, we have to understand power and, and get to the bottom of what it is. But I, I don't want to only talk about the crisis in Afghanistan. I'm sort of thinking we should be thinking about the multidimensional crisis we're all currently facing, right? There is the tragedy in Afghanistan, uh, other countries that are facing so difficult situations, and then global challenges that we're all facing, right? We're all facing a health crisis. Uh, on top of that crisis, we're also facing an environmental crisis. And we're also all facing a crisis of inequalities, 
right? If you think about the economic situation in a number of countries at the moment. Now, what it means to me is that when we're facing such moments of crisis, and we've seen that in history, what societies have to do is to be able to reinvent themselves. And so that's the challenge we're facing now. What we have to be able to do is find the power to implement change. Now, if you want to implement any kind of change, if you want to save lives, if you want to save the planet, if you want to help create an economic system that's going to be fairer, more democratic and greener, you have to understand what power is about. And the issue we're facing today is that too many people still have misconceptions about power that prevent them from understanding what power is about. And so power is about influencing other people, having the ability to influence them. But the real question is, where does this power come from? And so that's what we explain in the book. And that's the reason why we wrote this book, to lift the veil on power and explain to people what it is and where it comes from. And so that's what we refer to as the fundamentals of power. And so I'll tell you where power comes from. Power comes from control over access to valued resources. I have power over you, Andrew, if I control access to resources that you value. And you have power over me if you control access to resources that I value. Now, the extent of my power or your power will obviously depend on the extent to which you and I can find alternative channels to access the resources that we value. But what you have to understand is that it's always about this critical thing. What do the parties in presence value and who controls access to what they value? If you know about these two questions, now you're equipped to analyze power relationships in different contexts in your personal life. Uh, in your organization, in your workplace, and, and beyond in society. But if you don't understand power, then you're completely blindsided and you're not able to understand what happens around you, again, be it in your own life, in your organization, or broadly, domestically, or internationally. You talk about lifting the veil. I'm not going to make any Taliban jokes on that one. But um, your book, Power for All, is you claim at least a, a revelation about the nature of power. Power has been written about many times. Machiavelli, of course, is perhaps, I don't know if he's the father of, of, of books about power, but he's certainly one of the key fathers. Uh, we've had shows about him. We've also had shows about Thomas Hobbes and his theory of power and the state. What are you bringing to this debate that people have missed so far? the Machiavellis and the Thomas Hobbes of the world? Is it perhaps because they're men, Julie, that you're bringing a new perspective here? Two critical things, right? So let me first say that obviously uh, their contributions were absolutely critical contributions. Now, uh, let me uh, concentrate here on Machiavelli. Machiavelli wrote his very well-known essay, The Prince, right? For a prince in the 16th century, now, we decided to write this book not only for the powerful ones, or not only for those who want to emulate the powerful ones, but for everyone, including those who've been excluded for, from power for a long time, right? I, 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 can I call you on this one, Julie? Because everyone has access to books. Um, you have been awarded... Um, you were given by Davos. Uh, you're one of the, the 40 social innovators driving social change, uh, social innovation thought leaders. You, t you teach at Harvard. You're part of the elite. You're no different from Machiavelli. I mean, you're, you're, you, you, you're not writing for ordinary people, are you? 
So listen, so A, thank you for calling me on that. You're right to say that, uh, you know, I, I am a member of an institution, in this case, Harvard University, that is a, a powerful institution. More uh, than powerful. I mean, the most powerful education institution in the world. One of the most powerful education institutions in the world, absolutely. And so from that standpoint, I feel a great sense of responsibility, uh, the, which is all about democratizing access to education. And um, I'm part of a group of people within Harvard, like trying to think about how can we democratize that access and, and make the content of what we teach available much more broadly. And we're not alone in doing that. Many organizations, other institutions, other universities have been doing it. And I'm not saying that we've been successful to the extent we should be. I think we have a lot of work to do, but it is critical that we do that work because it's at the moment uh, essential and, 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 and really, really important. Uh, now, in writing that book, uh, Tiziana Kasharyo, my co-author and myself, were very clear about the fact that we wanted for that book to be the kind of book that would be accessible. We were not writing this book only for other academics and researchers. We didn't want to remain in our bubble. We wanted to make those fundamentals, principles of power available to everyone. And why is it so? Because we know from our research, from our teaching, from our experience of advising change makers and people in organizations across the globe, that once people understand power, then they can have more impact. And we also know from our experience that power can be taught, that it's not this thing that's supposed to be the privilege of the powerful ones who already have so much of it, but that, again, if you explain it to people, they can understand it and they can gain a measure of power and they can build the power they need to go and have the kind of impact that they aspire to. Now, I want to go back and to your question about Machiavelli and what we're adding right to that, because it's not only that we want for power to be accessible to all. The other thing about that book that we wrote about power is that it's not a book that's only about the social psychology of persuasion and influence. A number of such books have already been written and they are important ones. Right? And it's not a book that's only about politics at the more macro level and democracy. Again, very important books have been written on that topic and we need those books as well. What we want to do with this book is help our readers understand the connection between their personal lives, their power in their everyday lives and what's happening at the more macro level. Like it would be foolish to believe that you can have any kind of power without accounting for what's happening in the broader society, right? Some existing power hierarchies empower you or constrain you depending on who you mm. are, depending on your demographics. And so what we wanted to do with this book is help people like on that whole journey so that they understand the connection between their power, the existing power structures, and so that they also get to understand what we can do collectively to change these power structures when it is so clear that they are unfair. Yeah, you're, um, you, you speak very passionately and, and you speak about Machiavelli in an extremely interesting way. I don't know what it is about the Italians, Julie, but they have a particular interest and understanding of power, not just Machiavelli, of course, but the 19th century philosopher of history, Vico, and the early 20th century Marxist theorist, Gramsci. You add another Italian, to the pantheon of authorities on power, someone most of us wouldn't have expected to show up in a, in a kind of erudite Harvard Business School book. Uh, the designer Donatella Versace. Why is Versace the model for rethinking power and perhaps a, a, 
a, a paragon of, of the new structures of power. You write about it in, in some detail in the book. Yeah, so l- let me say that, that that's important. You're, you're asking this question that my co-author on this book, Tiziana Cacharo, is uh, American uh, and, and Canadian and Italian. So she, she was born in Italy. So there And you're French, French, of course. So there's, am, a, there's a little bit of uh, European flair to this book, as, Julie. As you can hear to my accent. So uh, your question about Donatella, I'm going to turn to it. But I, I first want to tell you a bit more, Andrew, about the kind of approach we had to writing this book, right? So we've both been teaching about power, researching the politics of change in organizations and in society for now more than 20 years. Um, and so we, we, building on our research and our experience teaching, knew the content we wanted to make accessible to our readers. But we also knew we wanted to bring life to that content. And so what we did is that we interviewed more than 100 people from across the world, across continents, across sectors, some of them very well known, some of them not well known at all, some of them very educated, some of them who never had a chance to go to school and who have been able to have an incredible impact within their communities. We also work in different fields, Tiziana and myself. So we brought a lot of diversity to those interviews and we talked to people to understand their experiences with power. And and through these interviews, we wanted to gain a better understanding of how power manifests, right, across demographics, across sectors, across countries, across the world. Now, Donatella, from that standpoint, uh, is one of the people we talked to. So I wouldn't say that uh, she's the role model. Like, I don't think that any of the people we are presenting in in this book uh, should be considered as the role model. You're just having a chance to get exposed to different people who were generous enough to talk to us and share their stories with us so that we could learn all learn with them and from them. So why is it that we talk about Donatella and what can we learn from her story? So as you know, Donatella Versace, when her uh, brother uh, died, found herself at the helm of the fashion empire that her brother had developed. And um, as an Italian woman at the time, she shared with us how complicated her situation was, because the truth is that no one really believed that she had it in her to be able to take the lead. And everyone believed that the genius was really her brother. And so she described to us a situation in which she felt really powerless. And uh, the key question for her became, well, how am I going to deal with this? I would be thinking, come on, Julie, <laughs> was she really powerless? She was not at the Versace, and she was indeed, as you just said, at the helm of this empire. So she was at the top of the hierarchy. But the reason why Donatella's story is interesting is because she exemplifies a typical situation that people quite often face. Here she was being at the top of the organizational chart, and yet she reported feeling powerless. You would be surprised, Andrew, by the number of CEOs, top executives, people at the top of their organizations who would, behind closed doors, tell us, you know what, I feel powerless. I'm not able to influence the behavior of people in the way I think I should be able to if I wanted to be able to better serve our different stakeholders, our customers, and the community in which we work. Right. This is because power and authority are not the same. And this is precisely what Donatella experienced, and this is why we share our story. What is authority? Authority is the formal right to give orders and commands. So your authority can be a source of power in some situation. But remember what I shared with you at the beginning of our conversation about the fundamentals of power. 
power derives from controlling access over resources that others value. So power and authority are not the same. You may actually be at the top and have far less power than someone who's lower down in the hierarchy. And in fact, Tiziana and I, in the research we've done together, we try to identify who the most effective change makers in organizations are. And what we found is that the most effective ones were not the people at the top, but they were the people to whom others went for advice. And so this tells you about the importance of networks in an organization. If you want to be able to map the political landscape around you, you have to understand the network of relationships. To whom do people go for advice? Right. And so what Donatella Versace did uh, after some time when she found herself in charge is that she started trying to understand the organization beyond the organizational chart. She got to understand that she had to build the relationships that she had to surround herself with the kind of team that would enable her organization, her company to succeed. She went from having a top-down approach to now thinking again about the political complexity of the organization. And she was very careful in designing a team that would be a very diverse team. She wanted to have more women around her because there were not that many of them. And she had this instinct that she needed the support of other women. And she was right. That's what our research showed. If you're a woman, uh, surround yourself with other women. Absolutely support each other. That's going to make a difference. But do not surround yourself only with people like you. You need diversity. So you need men, you need women. And you, you also need to make sure that you have... Is this, is this theory, do you think, um, somewhat coincidental? And is it perhaps... Um, a degree of irony here that it's coming out of top business schools where there's a, a radical lack of either mostly of ideological diversity. Um, is it coincidental that your conclusions about how to wield power reflect your own ideological or seem to reflect your own ideological certainties about diversity? So I, I wouldn't say this is ideological, right? We, you know, you, we now. Oh, you wouldn't. No, no ideology here. Uh, this, we're talking about the research that has been conducted on diversity. Uh -huh. right? So it's all uh, ac academic research it rather is, than... It is academic research, right? We've been looking at uh, the kind of networks that enable uh, women and, 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 and people who come from marginalized groups to succeed in organization. And so what I'm sharing with you now is based on that research. And you were talking about diversity and more broadly the benefits of diversity in organizations. And we now have a whole body of research that is now not from an ideological standpoint, but really looking at the data, examining you know, the relationships between more versus less diversity on boards in organizations and the performance of organizations. Um you uh, you mention uh, other books on power. You refer to uh, Robert Greene's uh, iconic book, The 48 Laws of Power, which was a real bestseller, sold 1.2 million copies. Um, uh, Fast Company called it a mega cult classic. Um, and it turned, according to Wikipedia, turned Greene into a cult hero with a hip hop set, Hollywood elite and prison inmates. There was a kind of Machiavellian element, I guess, to Greene's work. If your book becomes a bestseller, who, who do you expect to read it? Do you have your own community, just as the the hip hop community and, and prison inmates read, read Green? Who's going to read your book? Our hope is that you know, people with very different backgrounds will read the book. 
like I'm going to start with young people. My, my hope is that the book will help young people who are getting started. And I talk with so many of them who want to have an impact, won't be, they want to be part of the change. They want to address the multidimensional crisis we were discussing at the very beginning of our conversation. And so my hope is that this book will help them better understand the environment in which they are and help them better understand how in joining forces together, they can implement change in their organizations and more broadly in society. Uh, my And so from, from that standpoint, I, I'll, I'll go further and say, I hope that the book will be helpful to all the social change makers who are working so hard on the ground to make change happen as we speak now. I work with many of them at the social innovation and change initiative that I created. And part of the motivation for writing this book was to give them the tools and equip them with the frameworks and knowledge they would need to then have more impact. Too often, these people think of power as the dirty side of things. They don't mm. want to engage with it, but power is not dirty. It is the force you need to get anything done. But the book is not only for social change makers. The book is for anyone who wants to gain some control on their lives, who want to be able to better understand what's happening in their workplaces, in their neighborhood, in their family. Right? Once you understand the fundamentals of power, then you are able to better understand what's happening around you. And I'll tell you that the book is also a book for those who are in positions of power. And I take that very seriously because I do believe that today, one of the biggest challenges that we face as a society is to learn how to share power and how to hold those in power accountable. And so it is absolutely critical for those in power to learn how they can share their, their power, how they can better empower others. And my hope is that the book will also enable them to do that. So I know that this is a large spectrum of readers, but as we were writing, we were really thinking about all of those different people, hoping that the book will be helpful to them in different ways, but, but still a helpful tool for them to, to think about how they can use their power differently. And you were uh, talking Ju about- Julie, um, you say the kind of people you'd like to read the book. You mentioned uh, the great American politician, great in a political sense, perhaps not a moral one, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. You also refer to Vito Corleone at one point in the book. What do you think Corleone is obviously a fictional figure and LBJ, if he was to come back to life, what would they learn from your book about power? So you're talking about LBJ and the, we, we, did, we discuss indeed LBJ briefly in, in, in chapter one. Uh, and the, the reason why we decided to use LBJ in chapter one is because if you look at LBJ's trajectory, how he was able to rise to power, especially during his time in the Senate, what's quite remarkable about him as, as, a, as a politician is that he understood power. Think about what he did, right? He talked to all of these different senators. He got mm. to understand what is it that they wanted and needed. And then he found ways to provide them with what they wanted and needed. And that's how he was able to influence them. That's how he built his power base, right? Now, he was able to map power relationships in the Senate in an incredibly effective way. Now, this is, became more complicated for him when he became president of the United States because now he was not only dealing with people like him, right? Because at the time in the Senate, you mostly had a white American men, right? just like him. But when he became president, he had to deal with many different constituencies domestically and internationally. So doing the kind of power mapping that he was doing became much more complicated. But what we can learn from LBJ is these critical skills that, that we should all 
develop if we want to understand power in our lives and in our organizations. Like who, again, what do people need and want and who controls access to what they need and want? So that net, net, Networking skills. Um, Julie, you talk about the younger generation, or you just spoke about the younger generation. You note in the book at the beginning and particularly at the end that the ball is in our court, particularly young people's court. Uh, we had Jill Filopovich, I'm sure you're familiar with her work on the show, talking about how uh, the young uh, need to seize power from boomers. You also uh, write about Greta Thunberg and uh, Malala in, in, in your book. Um, is 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 the, the battleground of power now a, a generational one? What's so different about younger people today? I think what's different about younger people today is that they... They, you know, you could say it's been the case for every generation that they want things to change, but I think they really understand the urgency, right, of the change. They understand that what's at stake is the future of our planet. When you think about Greta Thunberg and Fridays for Future, and in, in the book, we talk about Shia uh, Batista, who's part of the Fridays for Future movement, who's a, a young woman in New York who we interviewed for the book itself. And so this generation of of uh, young people, they understand the urgency and they know we have to take action. So my hope is that we are going to be working with them, that it's not going to be only on their shoulders, but that we are all together going to make change happen. Now, these young people play a critical role in the collective movement for change. They play the role of agitators. What they're doing is that they're agitating against the status quo, making us understand and become every day more aware of the necessity for all of us to take action. But for change to happen, what Tiziana and I see in our work, you do not only need agitators, you also need innovators and orchestrators. The innovators are those who come up with the solutions, the alternative ways of doing things. And the orchestrators are the ones who then implement these changes at scale. And the young people are not naive. They are aware of the fact that what's needed is agitation, innovation, and orchestration. I like these words, but aren't they catchwords? We've heard them time and time again, uh, Julie, coming out of uh, Silicon Valley. A few years ago, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Moises Naim, the Venezuelan political thinker, wrote a book called The End of Power which um, it, it's a very different book from yours, but talked about the networking of power, the end of hierarchies. Uh, surprise, surprise, Mark Zuckerberg back in 1915 made uh, Naeem's book his uh, first reading book for his reading list. Of course, Zuckerberg and Facebook have formalized new structures of power. Um, the the models of innovation, particularly that have come out of the top business schools like Harvard and out of Silicon Valley, have only compounded inequality. Why should we believe in these catchphrases like innovation? They, they, they've compounded our problems so far. What evidence do you have that things will get better? So uh, l- let, me, let me first comment on you know, the, the end of power, right? uh, yeah. because this is what you're talking about. Well, the claim for the end of power by optimists, the Zuckerbergs yeah. coming yeah. out of Silicon yeah. Valley, we've heard it for now 30 years. And of course, the more we hear about the end of power, the more power lies in the hands of companies like Facebook and Apple and Google and Amazon. This is the reality, Andrew. And this is the issue. And this is why we wrote that book. You know, power is not new. Power is not dead. 
right? I'm going to make a strong statement now and I'm willing to sign a document and I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> Good, I want strong statements, Julie. That's why you're on the show. And I'll tell you that. What I shared with you about the fundamentals of power, right? Power is about control over access to valued resources. That was already the case thousands of years ago when human beings were on this planet trying to get organized to live together. And that will remain the same for as long as there will be human beings on this planet, assuming that we get our act together and we do not destroy our planet. So, you know, is there an end? Like, is, is power dead? Is power new? No, I mean, power itself has not changed. Power is power. It's about control over access to valued resources. Now, with each era, and especially each technological era, because this is also what you're touching on now, what is it that's happening? What's happening is that the valued resources evolve and different people control these valued resources. It happened with the agricultural revolution. Uh, it happened with the printing revolution. It has happened again with the digital revolution. Now, what is it that has happened with the digital revolution? It's not the end of power. <laughs> power is still there. And you're right to say it's concentrated. We were all hopeful that this digital revolution would make knowledge available to so many across the world that finally we would be able to deal with entrenched inequalities. That was a wonderful hope. And that could have happened because technology is neither good nor bad. The only question is how do you use the technology? But the reality is that what has happened during the digital revolution is that power has become ever more concentrated in the end of a number of large tech companies and you know the owners of these companies. So let's dig a little bit deeper because what I'm saying now is very obvious to everyone, but I want to relate it to the fundamentals of power. Right? We are in a situation that I would say is unheard of in the history of mankind. Uh, and that uh, Shoshana Zuboff has actually also analyzed in her excellent book, Surveillance Capitalism. Yeah, and so Shoshana has been on the show as well. Exactly. So uh, my, my viewers are very familiar with her work. Okay, exactly. So but what's unique if you think about the fundamentals of power is the following. We are in a world today in which you have a number of companies that can, in real time, through access to our personal data, know what we need and want better than we do. They also have the tools to influence our needs and wants right? through the digital tools that they control and the platforms that they control. And then they can sell to us what we need and want. So if you talk and think about an imbalance of power, this is quite extreme. Indeed, they concentrate a lot of power in their hands. And so this is the reason why it is time for all of us to wake up as citizens and get organized to rebalance power. Andrew, because this is important and it relates to your question about Mark Zuckerberg. What the people in power who concentrate so much wealth and power in their hands have to understand is that it is not only in the interest of those who are not in privileged position to make change happen. It is in their interest too. We know from research that when we have huge inequalities, huge power imbalances, at the end of the day, everyone will suffer. So what we have to be thinking about is shared prosperity. And in our case, everyone will suffer because we all live on the same planet. And what we have to do is save this planet. But we also have to go against extreme inequalities if we want to protect the stability of political and, and social systems. Um, we had, a, you teach at the Harvard Business School, you hold a chair there. We also had Rebecca Henderson, I'm sure you're familiar with her, she's probably a friend of yours, also teaching Absolutely. at the Harvard Business School. 
um, who believes that the reform to the system will come from within corporations. You hold the Joseph C. Wilson chair at the Harvard Business School. He was a former CEO at Xerox. Uh, You've also um, written uh, a a number of of quite powerful pieces about the democratization of work for the people and the planet. To what extent is reform, uh, Julie, going to come from within corporations? I know that Rebecca believes that because of our dysfunctional political system, corporations are now the most effective vehicle for social and economic change and justice. It's ironic. Do you agree with her? So thank you. Rebecca is indeed a dear colleague and and, and friend of mine, and and she wrote uh, an extremely timely and important book. Uh, You're right to say that I hold a chair at the business school. I also want to say that I hold a chair at the Kennedy School of Government. And I'm saying that not to say that I hold two chairs because who cares? Absolutely no one. But what's important to me is that it says a lot about my approach. Like I I have a foot in the world of business and a foot in the world of government. Uh, I'm actually one of the people who believes that if we want for change to happen, then all of the stakeholders are going to have to be part of that change. Corporations need to change, absolutely. But we also need to change the institutional environment so that we can hold these corporations accountable for the change and so that we can create the right incentives to make them change. So now what what does it mean? What is it that we should be changing? Well, among the things that you're right, I've been uh, working on, a few key things I want to highlight about corporate change, and I'll bring that back to this question of what then... Democratizing work. Uh, you, 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 You wrote a very powerful piece that went viral last year. We did about the, the importance of democratizing work. So what, what do we need to do? We need to share power in corporations. And uh, two critical things here. We need to obviously share power uh, across different kinds of demographic groups. And this is related to the, the challenge of creating more inclusive workplaces. Uh, and if you think about where we are now after the Me Too movement, as we are now also in this era of Black Lives Matter in the United States, it is clear to everyone that we have to make great progress. Corporations are committing to making a number of these changes happen, but we're talking about cultural changes that will take time, and we need to make sure that we will hold companies accountable so that the changes will indeed happen. But this is not the only power sharing that needs to happen. We also need to think about power sharing between shareholders, top executives, and workers. We live in a world today in which workers really do not have much power inside organizations. They do not have a real say on key strategic decisions, and they want to have a say. Look at what's happening today. They want a say on their working conditions. They want a say on their return to in-person work policies. Isn't it normal? It is absolutely normal. Those decisions are affecting their lives. And they want to say on the future of their companies because they care about these companies being sustainable, right? Look at what has happened at Alphabet, right? The the creation of a union that is all about, indeed, employees wanting to also be part of those decisions and wanting to hold their companies accountable. Uh, So this democratization of work is critical. Workers have to have a chance to weigh in and be represented. And that can only happen if they get to be represented in some of the bodies that make critical decisions. So in many situations, what I think we have to start thinking about now is shouldn't workers be represented on the boards of their corporation so that they can have a say and they can work together with the other stakeholders to make the best possible decision for the company and for the different stakeholders it's serving. Right. So that's a critical thing. And I'm going to add another point to that, which is to say that as we think about sharing power, 
we should also continue to think about holding those in power accountable because there is no reason to believe that people will not abuse their power you know that you've been deprived from power from so, for some time doesn't mean that once you are in power then i should trust that you will not abuse your power this is something that uh, we are not immune to you're not immune to it and who i'm not immune to it we should always make sure that we are held accountable and as we hold uh, the, the people in power in companies accountable for what they do, we need to hold them accountable for their financial, social, and environmental performance. We have to move away from the only focus on financial value and take into account the so social and environmental impacts of corporations. We now have tools to do that. We have entities that have been created, the GRI, SASB, that are about measuring the performance social and environmental of companies it's now time for investors to use this information so that companies also get incentivized to make the changes but let's not be naive that will not happen if the institutional context doesn't change and this is why i think governments uh, public organizations have to be part of the change we have to change the rules of the game so that we truly reward the companies that pursue social environmental and financial objectives all at once and do everything they can to make that happen yeah, Julie, as you say in your, um, in your piece that went viral about work, you want to democratize, decommodify, and remediate. As you suggest, uh, you teach both at the business school at Harvard um, and at the political uh, school, the, um, the Kennedy School. Uh, the kids that go to Harvard, they pay large money. They compete uh, vigorously. Um, to go to Harvard, presumably to acquire a degree of power, political or economic. How do the kids respond, the, the business school students or the students at the Kennedy School, uh, when, when you tell them when they're on the verge of economic, political, cultural power that they need to democratize, decommodify and remediate? Are they into this? Has this become the, the, the new, uh, as Gramsci would put it, the new ideology of the ruling class, the people who go to Harvard? And their teachers, people like yourself? I can I can only speak for myself, right? And tell you what I do from a research standpoint and what I teach when I go to the classroom. So uh, again, I want to be very clear that when I teach about power, the fundamentals, and I build on research, this is not ideological. It's about equipping my students with the tools. And then there is indeed what I study too, which is companies that pursue social, environmental, and financial objectives. Now, would I say that people like Rebecca Henderson, who you mentioned, and myself and a number of our other colleagues who care about the same questions as we do, are in the majority at Harvard Business School? Um, you know, like it's to be seen, there is a generational change. We have a new dean uh, who uh, has just announced the creation of a business and society initiative. So clearly the, the business school uh, cares increasingly about the issues that uh, uh, someone like me cares about. Uh, and the question is going to be now, how do we make our content evolve? Are we going to see the content of what's taught across courses, including finance, for example, evolve? I can tell you that a number of my colleagues have already made this content evolve. Uh, do I think that we should go further, that it is absolutely critical for us to include all three dimensions and the triple, triple bottom line to everything we teach? Uh, I think that it is. Some of my colleagues may actually disagree with me. I think it's important to have this debate now but what I'll tell you is that the students deeply care. Like I was with them this morning, a group of students uh, at the Kennedy School that time. They were uh, with me to sort of learn more about the course I'll be teaching on the fundamentals of power in, in, in January. 
and uh, they are quite passionate. And the reason why they are interested in such a course is because they want to better learn the tools they could use to have the social impact that they want to have. So again, they want to be part of the change. And, and that to me is a great source of energy. Uh, we should not forget, and that's related to your question about the 48 laws of power, Andrew, that for a number of them, the issue they're facing is that they do not really want to engage with power because they think of it as dirty. And I think this is the issue with the book, like the 48 laws of power and a number of other books in, in that vein. And the Moises Naim book, probably too, the, the end of power. This, that, that, that this, is, this is dirty. The power is a bad thing. And as you say, it's not a bad thing if you understand it properly. I think anyone who's watched this interview will have to read uh, Julie's new book. It's as passionate, as articulate, as controversial, uh, as fascinating as this conversation. Uh, power for All by Julie Batilana and Tiziana Caschiara. Um, it's out. I think it's out today, Julie, is it? It's out tomorrow. I so think uh, you're going to already you're going to be competing with uh, you're going to be competing with the 48 laws of power in terms of the millions of copies sold. Congratulations on the new book. I really enjoyed it, uh, and as you can tell, I agree and disagree. But it's a it's a profoundly interesting book about perhaps the most important issue today uh, in society. Uh, I know you are um, in uh, Massachusetts at home uh, in these strange times, Julie. In addition to your new book, uh, Power for All. What else should people be reading in these, un, un, as you put it, unheralded time in world history? Yeah, you know, you, we, we talked about inclusion and a lot of what has happened over the past few months in the United States relate to, obviously, you know, the, the pandemic, but also Black Lives Matter. And so many people and so many organizations across the United States and across the world are, are now deeply aware of the need to create more inclusive work environment. So I'm going to actually uh, bring your attention to this book you might have already read, The Conversation by Robert Livingston. Uh, Robert has is a colleague at, at, the, at the Kennedy Oh, Center. we'll have to get him on. I know the movie, The Conversation, very different and, kind and of so conversation. So absolutely, yeah, excellent. And, and reading his book. Well, Judy, uh, Ju uh, Julie Batilana, uh, a wonderful, uh, spirited conversation. I'm, I'm thrilled you're on the show, and you, you bring that uh, uh, that French polemical feistiness, which sometimes is lacking in American life. So I want to really thank you for a wonderful conversation. Congratulations on the new book, uh, Power for All. It's out today. It's a must read. Keep well, Julie. We'll have you back on the show again, and we can argue lots more about everything. Thank you so much. Thank you.